We are going to study John's gospel together. So if you have your Bible, you might want to turn there. All right, let's pray real quick. Father, we're going to look at your word. So we ask for insight and understanding as your spirit speaks to us about the truths here. And we just um, thank you so much for the clarity of John as a writer and all the things we can learn about our Lord and Jesus Christ and our wonderful Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Well, way back in the 18th century, there was a London preacher named John Newton. Most of you know who he is. He's famous because he was a slave trader, uh, slave ship captain actually, that came to Christ and became a leading abolitionist in England that uh, fought the slave trades. And he wrote a letter to a friend trying to explain how it is that God draws a man to Christ by awakening his heart or granting him understanding by his grace. He wanted to explain spiritual blindness, spiritual blindness, the inability to see the beauty of Christ and the wonder of the gospel that we're saved by grace and not by works through Christ's atoning death. He's trying to explain that. So he came up with this illustration and I found it kind of interesting. It's, it's, uh, he's trying to illustrate what it's like to be blind and then suddenly see in a context Uh, different than what we're talking about here but uh, with kind of a related idea. So he says use your imagination and picture in your mind a a nation of people, an entire nation, they're all blind. And he says, and now this is a guy writing in the 1700s so his language is a little flowery, just hang with me, okay? (laughs) He says, if we could suppose it possible that there was a whole nation of blind men and one or two people should go among them and profess that they could see. While they could not offer them such a proof of their assertion as they were capable of receiving, nor even explain to their satisfaction what they meant by sight, what may we imagine would be the consequence? I think there is little doubt but these innovators would experience much the same treatment as the believers of Jesus often meet with from a blind world. The blind people would certainly despise them for presuming to pretend to what they had not, which would be sight, right? They would try to dispute them out of their senses and bring many arguments to prove that there could be no such thing as either light or sight. They would say, as many say now, how is it if these things are so that we should know nothing of them? Yes, I think it is probable they would, uh, would even rise against them as deceivers and enthusiasts and disturbers of the public peace and say, away with such fellows from the earth that it is not fit that they should live. That's actually what they said about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. But if we should suppose further that during the heat of the contest, some of these blind men should have their eyes suddenly opened. The dispute for them would be at an end in a minute. They would confess their former ignorance and obstinacy, confirm the testimony of those whom they had before despised, and of course share in the same treatment from their blind brethren. Perhaps be treated still worse as apostates from the opinion of the public. And that's very much what it's like to try to explain the truth of Christ to people that are spiritually blind. They don't get it. And then when somebody does get it, the lights come on, God's grace opens their eyes, their friends say, oh, that's terrible, you know, that isn't real. So these people here, they can, um, we're talking about spiritually blind people can hear the facts 
examine the historical evidence for the resurrection and for many things in the Bible and read or hear about that most amazing world changing person Jesus of Nazareth and even find him interesting in some way and they can hear all about fulfilled prophecy and they can hear how he suffered as a sacrifice to restore them to God and yet be completely unmoved by it. They can hear the whole thing they can see read all about Jesus and be untouched because they cannot receive it and only the Holy Spirit can convince them of the truth. Only the Holy Spirit of God can open our eyes. If you believe that's what happened to you. God's grace came down and he opened your eyes. So today we're in John 9 and we're looking at the healing of a blind man. And we've said in the first half of John's gospel right after the prologue, the prologue goes up to verse 18 and then John's gospel is structured around seven miracles and then there's usually conversations or preaching that goes along with those miracles. John calls miracles signs. He never calls them miracles. He calls them signs because they point to Jesus as the way John presented him at the very beginning of his gospel. The word, the word was God. The word was with God. The word was God. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1 the word became flesh. He's presenting that. So he's talking about that and all of these signs point to Jesus as God become flesh. So this morning we're looking at the sixth sign so it will be the last one before the most amazing sign in chapter 11 but we're not there yet. So far we've seen him changing water into wine that was chapter 2. Healing the royal official's son 20 miles away which was in chapter 4. Um, he healed the man who was an invalid for 38 years in chapter 5. The feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 verses 1 through 14 and then walking on water which only the disciples saw in chapter 6 verse 16 through 21. And now comes healing a blind man. And this one stands out because this man did not lose his vision. He was born blind. Even with all of our technology it's virtually impossible to heal somebody that's born blind, right? To restore sight to them. That's such a delicate part of our system. I do understand that there's one or two born blind conditions that they can do something about and give some kind of aid to but other than that there's nothing we can do even even with all our technology today. So this sign defies explanation. It's a true miracle. It's a great miracle and you'll notice that chapter 9 is kind of lengthy here. Look at that. Mm, yeah it's a lot of verses. So John devotes a lot of space to this because the whole chapter covers this story and it's a it's a well told story. And it, it's interesting because a fair portion of it in the middle Jesus isn't there. So it's, it, it's not all about him directly uh, during the middle of this thing. So um, this is also another example of a miracle that leads to an extended dialogue with Jesus enemies and that's another part of this. The other thing I like about it is that we get to meet some very average people. Not big shots, not priests and Pharisees and leaders of the community and all that kind of stuff. Just typical Jews who don't have any standing at all with the authorities, just everyday people. And um, they're common people. They're common people who are trying to avoid getting caught up in the system. You know what I mean? It's like if you're an authoritarian country, you just try not to make waves so that they'll leave you alone. That you just want to survive, right? So you move on. Those kind of things. We also learn how the Pharisees actually exercise control over the population. Even though they didn't have much political power, they had cultural and spiritual power and that's, they used that over the population to control them. So we'll see how 
that works in how they treated people who followed Jesus. There's also, this isn't super deep stuff. You know, sometimes you get real theological in John's gospel and we don't have to do that today. It's pretty straightforward stuff. So that's kind of good too. Nothing really needs explanation. It's, it's a simple, straightforward story about this healing. And the message is very simple and very clear. The theme is blindness, right? Physical, yeah, but mainly it's about spiritual blindness. Not being able to see the glory and the beauty of Christ and not understanding what he did for us or appreciating it or having any sense of it meaning anything for me. That's spiritual blindness. So who is able to see and who isn't able to see? So if you look at all the miracles of Jesus, healing the blind is actually the most common one that he did, which is also interesting because the Old Testament says that it doesn't talk about healing blindness except God doing it directly or the Messiah doing it. Who is God? We know. But um, that's it. So like Isaiah 42 is one of the great passages on that about the Messiah. I'm going to read to you Isaiah 42 1 here. It says, Behold my servant, so God is speaking, his servant is the Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Boy, I'd love to explain all that right there because that's rich stuff. He's a gentle person and yet he brings justice to the nations. How does he do that? So and then verse 6 he says, I am the Lord. Now he's speaking to the Messiah. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Remember Jesus had just said in John's gospel, he's the light of the world. Remember that? He's going to point to that again and then verse 7 of Isaiah 42 to open blind eyes to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison so to open blind eyes and to set captives free that's what the God is saying he's going to do and that's Jesus all the way through right so let's look at the story Um, John 9 verse start in the beginning here takes place in Jerusalem it's not super clear when this happens So it looks like it kind of flows out of chapter 7 and 8 which takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles but there's some things that kind of point to it maybe connecting to chapter 10 which we'll look at next week but um, that's a few months later so it doesn't really matter because this story stands all on its own anyway but um, sometimes John says where things are happening after the story has already started. So in chapter 10 verse 22 he says at that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico. So it could be connected to that instead of back to the previous one. But it doesn't matter like I said. So we know where they were in the temple. That matters. The place matters a lot. And Jesus is walking with his men and he encounters a blind man. So verse 1. He passed by. He saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him Rabbi. Who sinned? Who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind? Say, so what kind of a question is that? Well, the only reason you think that's an odd question is because you live in a Christian culture and it's been influenced by the Bible heavily. 
because it, it, that is a weird idea, but it was a common idea in Jesus' day. So for the disciples, the man is, they see this blind person, blind from birth, and they're not so much interested in how can we help him as this is a really interesting case, a theological case, you know, because he was born blind. So they, they want to ask these doctrinal questions to Jesus. You know, in the book of Job, Job's friends come, and what did they all say is the reason for his great suffering? You did something. (laughs) You did something. In fact, you know, Job is, there's three men in the Old Testament that are called the most righteous men of the time, and Job is one of the three. He's a super righteous guy. Not sinless, but righteous. Good man. Very good man. In fact, one of them at the end of Job freaks out and starts calling him a child molester and all kinds of things. I mean, it's like, not that exactly, but I mean, like, you're the worst human on earth, and he actually was a righteous, a righteous man from God's point of view, right? So, um, so that's kind of going on here. There's, there's, a, there's a cultural and religious emphasis in first century Judaism to find the cause of affliction, and it's always sin. Somebody sinned, and that's why this person is like this. So to them, this is a really interesting case. Uh, we don't know which disciples are here. They might not even be the 12. They could be other disciples. None of them are named in this particular situation. But they want to know who sent this man or his parents so that he would be born blind. So where does the blame belong? It's got to be someone. Now the desire to find this out, the theological question, it's not too different from why somebody is an untouchable in India. We were just talking about India this morning. So why are you in the lowest class where you can't get a decent job and and you're treated horribly and you live in poverty all your life? It's because of a sin you committed in a previous life. That's what they teach, right? Samsara, this this cycles of life thing. And if you were really bad, you end up being born in a low caste. If you are okay, you'll be born in a middle class caste. If you're really good you might be born in a Brahmin class or something the high class that kind of thing now Jews didn't believe in this transmigration of souls thing or the cycles of life thing but they did believe that all affliction is caused by some kind of sin that was what they taught that's not what the Bible teaches that's what they taught that's what their the Jewish theologians taught Um, and part of it comes from Exodus chapter 20 verse 5 where God says he, can, he will visit the sins of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. By that he just means there's going to be consequences. It doesn't mean they're going to be have blind or anything like that. But they've taken it to mean that. So William Hendrickson who's a Bible scholar he summarizes Jewish theology this way and he said it so well I'm just going to read it for you. He said in back of every physical affliction or defect lies a sin. Generally the sin of the afflicted one. But how can this be true if a man is born with a defect? In that case, he cannot have brought it on himself through his own misconduct. Can he? Is he being punished then for the sins of his parents? And if so, is this fair? This is the kind of discussions they would have back in the first century. He says, but no, there's another possibility. The individual who was born with the defect may after all be the cause of his own misfortune for he may have committed acts of sin while in his mother's womb. And you go well how could anybody possibly believe that? Well the rabbis of the day took lines from Genesis chapter 25 where Rebecca's going to have twins right? Jacob and Esau right? And they're struggling, the Bible says 
Genesis 25:22, the children struggled together within her. And so the rabbi said Esau was trying to kill Jacob in the womb. He's trying to murder him while he's in the womb. So he's guilty of attempted murder. The sin of murder before they were born. Now Genesis doesn't say anything like that. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. That was a theological, that's bad theology. Bad theology is always lurking somewhere. You have to be careful about that. People always come up with their own kooky ideas. So these kinds of questions seem to be on the minds of the disciples because they've been taught this all their lives and they've heard about this. So they asked Jesus about it. What does Jesus say? He takes all those ideas and just sweeps them away. Sweeps them away. Doesn't affirm anything like that. And he leads them to think that that kind of thinking is wrong because God can have other purposes for affliction just like the story of Job. God had completely other purposes for that which even Job never found out until he, until he died and went to heaven. But um, the, the Bible tells us. So Jesus verse 3. Jesus answered it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So he's saying, look, we don't look back for sin. We look forward to what God can do in a situation. And then verse 4, we must work. It's interesting that he says this. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is the day. Night is coming when no one can work. So you walk along and you see somebody with this affliction, right? Your first thought, the motive of your heart should not be, what did they do wrong? What, what is that person's problem? Don't look down on them or to blame them. That's not what your first reaction should be. And just assume it's because of some sin they did or their parents did or anything like that. You shouldn't even use your time speculating theologically about what they did to deserve that. He just sweeps that all away. What you should do and must do is be a blessing to that person because he says this is about God's work. Too many people think God's work is theologizing over affliction (laughs) and that was certainly true back then. Why not just see if you can help? Why not do that? At least be a ray of light, uh, a comfort to that person, an encourager for that person. So what does Jesus mean in verse 4 when he says as long as it is day? Well he tells us in verse 5. He says while I am in the world I am the light of the world. There he is. He's the light of the world again. Right? And as long as he's here in this world he's the light of the world. It is the day when the light is bright and when you can see everything very clearly. When Jesus is here you can see everything clearly by him. Watch his actions. Listen to his teaching. Appreciate who he is. He is the light. He's God in human flesh living out our life perfectly. So you can just look at him and say that's what I should be. That's how I measure myself. And when I measure myself by him I don't come out too well either. But then I know I'm wrong. Then I start looking for a savior. And he's that too. Right? It all comes together. So the day is while Jesus is here. The light of God. God in human flesh. The creator in the form of a creature. Showing the heart of compassion that belongs to God, his compassion. And, be, and showing us what God wants from us. So we're not going to speculate about somebody's suffering. We're going to alleviate it as much as we can. That's being light. Remember anything 
Remember anything about light from the Sermon on the Mount? There's something really early in the Sermon on the Mount about light. Do you maybe remember what that is? Matthew 5, 14, he says, you, you are the light of the world. That's right. And then in verse 16, he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Same principle as what we're talking about here. If we are his and are being transformed by him, we become lights too. By sharing all that he is, we can dispel darkness as well. The world belongs to Christ. I mean, it's his world, right? But, but it's a world that willed itself into darkness, that bit the apple, that followed Satan, that fell. It's a fallen world. So spiritual darkness is the norm on our planet. That's why things never end up right. You keep thinking things are going to get better and better and then everything starts unraveling again. And it goes in some weird direction. Whole cultures, all the time, it always seems to get lost. Lost is Jesus' word for people, by the way. People are lost and they need to be found. So when man fell, man lost every precious truth about God and Jesus came to bring light and life to those who walk in darkness. That's why he's the light of the world. And we are lights when we properly represent him. Okay, let's look at the miracle itself. It's kind of unusual uh, in that rather than just heal this man, Jesus actually uses some common material and then the guy being healed has to go do something. That's usually not how he does it. He just heals somebody. Raw power. Not this time. Verse 6, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. He came back seeing. A wonderful healing. A man who had never had vision in his life can see everything, right? His eyes are open to the world. So, of course, the big question always is, why did Jesus use this method of anointing the man's eyes? People always ask me these great Bible questions. What's the answer? We're not told. The answer is we're not told. We we aren't told. We have to guess. And guessing is always risky. (laughs) People throw out all kinds of ideas, but I actually think the clue is in verse 14, where John tells us, Now it was a Sabbath day. And I'll tell you why that's important in a minute. So just like John 5 when Jesus healed the man that had been uh, an invalid for 38 years. Remember that? Laying on a little pallet hoping to get into the the pool of Bethesda to get healed. You know there was this myth that you could get healed if you jumped in there first when the waters were moving or something like that. Remember that story? What did Jesus tell the guy to do? And it was a Sabbath day. Pick up your pallet and walk. So the guy was completely healed, dancing, ready to go, could jump anywhere he wanted to, and he's picked up his pallet and walked, and it was the Sabbath. Carrying on the Sabbath. So that's where chapter 5 is. There's all that trouble he and Jesus get into for violating the Sabbath. Now that's not against the Sabbath. It's against Pharisaical Sabbath rules. It's not against Moses' Sabbath, right? They had all these extra rules they always added on. So he was guilty of carrying. 
So the law of Moses said don't work on the Sabbath. What does that mean? It means don't go out in your fields and work. Don't open up your shop. Don't build a barn. It doesn't mean you can't pick up your little pallet and move it over here. It doesn't mean that. You know, that's not work. But believe it or not, making some little eye salve by spit and clay dirt and applying it on eyes, that would have been forbidden by the Pharisees. You're making on the Sabbath. Making something. That little bit, a little bit of dirt just to rub in his eye. Just something that simple. That's a violation, not of the law of Moses, but of Pharisaical rules that they had imposed on the entire population. So my guess is this is Jesus' way of poking, <laughs> not in, <laughs> poking in the eye, with, with uh, of kind of prodding the, the Pharisees to make a decision about this. Think about it. Are they going to rejoice in this incredible, impossible miracle, this sign, this man who'd been born blind from birth can suddenly see? Or are they going to get upset about making a little tiny bit of clay with spit? Guess which one they choose. So everybody's getting a lesson here. The disciples are getting a lesson about how to handle, situa- how to think about people that are afflicted, which is that this is an opportunity for God to work. And these hypocritical Pharisees. By the way, I should mention the pool of Siloam where the guy goes to wash. In 2005, archaeologists uncovered that pool. And now it's been thoroughly excavated. They're probably still doing work there. But you can actually go visit that place, which is kind of cool. But um, So the man's sight is restored. And when he gets back to where Jesus healed him, his beggar's spot, right? You know, he always, the beggars always sit in their same spot and try to get money. Jesus isn't there when he gets back. Can you imagine, though, the walk back? I mean, this guy goes to the pool of Siloam, washes his eyes, he has perfect vision for the first time ever in his life, and he sees the incredible buildings of Jerusalem, the great temple, all the Herod's incredible building works, and people, and faces, and animals, and all this kind of stuff, and um, he, he gets back to where he came from, so we don't know if somebody led him, or if he knew the way by feeling before, or whatever, but anyway, he goes back, no Jesus, he's not there anymore. Now John tells this story, as he does it, we have a rare glimpse here, here at this part of the average Jew, the hoi polloi. You know, you knew that phrase hoi polloi from 1940s movies, Frank Capra movies, I think, but I always, I always understood it meant something about the average Joe, but when I took Greek in, in college and seminary, hoi polloi is Greek. <laughs> And it means the people. That's what the hoi polloi is. So um, I said, oh, that's what that is. I thought it was some kooky expression from Jimmy Stewart or something. But anyway, um, the hoi polloi are people without power or authority. They're the regular people that make up a population. And, And we learn a good bit about it here from their relationship with the Pharisees and the religious authorities. So we don't get many good looks at other people when Jesus is not present. I mean, almost all the gospel stories are about Jesus. But here we got this little section where he's not there. So it's kind of just interesting. Well anyway, um, he comes back to the spot and he meets the neighbors, the people that either have their shops around where he's working or um, live nearby where he begged, he used to beg. You know, and they see him beg every day and they come back, he comes back and they can hardly believe it's him. Verse 8, therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Verse 9, others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, 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 couldn't be. But he's like him. He just looks like him. 
And he kept saying, I am the one. <laughs> but he's saying it with big eyes. And so they're not believing it. Some of, some of the people are like, no, you couldn't be. No. So verse 10, so they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? <coughs> he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? I don't know. I don't know where he went. So they want to meet Jesus too, but he has no idea where Jesus is. So you know who might be able to help? They think. The rabbis. Let's get the pastor. We'll go see the pastor. Verse 13. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath on that day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes. See, making. And I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, glory to God. This is a what? No, that's not what they say. (laughs) Verse 16, they're saying, this man is, this man, talking about Jesus, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. He was making on the Sabbath. So obviously that little bit of mud in his hands that that gave sight to a man blind from birth obviously he's not from God. How could he be? He broke one of our man-made rules. Well these average average citizens Joe and Susie or Judah and Miriam or whatever you want to call them they're not so sure about the opinion of the Pharisees, uh, the learned men, the Bible men, they're not so sure about them. So they ask a question in verse 6. Well, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? That's a really good question. How indeed? And John says, there was a division among them. So they weren't all buying the line that the authorities were selling. This is just too amazing, right? It's too incredible. So they turned back to the man born blind in verse 17. They said to him, What do you say about him? Talking about Jesus. What do you say about Jesus? Since he opened your eyes. And he said, he's a prophet. He's got to be. He's like Elijah. I mean, who else could do something like this, right? That's his opinion. He must be a prophet. Now, verse 18, John uses the expression, the Jews. Now, we've talked about that before. Usually when he says the Jews, he's he's always talking about the leadership but usually of the broader leadership because if he wants to identify a specific group like the Pharisees he says that but if it's sort of a broader group maybe some priests are involved or scribes or even people from the Greek council or part of this so so now he's using the phrase the Jews we've talked about that all through the gospel how he does that so that might include all these folks so so it seems like a little time has passed word has spread probably the Pharisees have brought in others from the leadership into the picture because they're right there in the temple in Jerusalem so it would be easy to do that. So um, this larger group calls for the young man's parents to be brought in. Okay so verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received his sight. They, they don't know this guy from Adam so they say no oh, no you're, this whole story is not right. This couldn't have happened. This, this doesn't happen. This doesn't happen. So they question that until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying is this your son who you say was born blind then how does he now see that's a good question now 
these guys already hate Jesus and everybody knows that they hate Jesus. So they and remember they question that this miracle even hap happened at all. So the parents have to be really careful. The leaders have already used their power to punish people who support Jesus and they know that their lives could be made very difficult. So watch how they answer this in verse 20. His parents answered them and said we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know. Who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. They just weaseled out of trouble really effectively there. And then verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason his parents said he is of age ask him. They're just afraid. They're just afraid. They have no power. So they tell the truth but they hide their opinion about it because they were not witnesses. They can honestly say he's our son he was born blind. The rest of it we weren't there. Ask him. He was there. So the Jews called the young man back in. Now remember he can see them now. He's never seen them before. He can see the look on their faces along with their harsh tones of their voices. So the very day of this great great blessing he can see the harsh faces of these religious leaders. Verse 24. A second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him give glory to God. Now whenever they say that in the Bible give glory to God when you're being examined it's a way of saying you better tell the truth. You can give glory to God by speaking the truth. So that's kind of it's done in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. So that's uh, that's what they mean by that. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Well that's not giving glory to God. <laughs> so they're shaping the options aren't they? You tell us the truth. One thing we know is that this Jesus guy is a sinner. That we know because he's a Sabbath breaker. If he says something positive now about this he's supporting a sinner right? But he handles it perfectly. I mean perfectly this blind man and honestly formerly blind man. Verse 25. Look at this exchange here. He answered whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind now I see. So they said to him what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He said I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too do you? Oh gosh. <laughs> they reviled him and said you are his disciple but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses but for this man we do not know where he is from. Now that's really interesting because they say they don't know when Jesus has told them multiple times already we've, as we've through, worked through this gospel where he's from and the, the last time he said he's from above right? So they know where he says he's from. Jesus told them that directly. It's at this moment that this beggar just shines. I mean he shows great wisdom and insight. He gives a perfect answer. Verse 30. The man answered and said to them well here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners but if anyone is God fearing and does his will he does hear him. Verse 32. 
since the beginning of time it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God he could do nothing. You can't answer that guy. It's a perfect answer. It's a noble answer. It's a wise answer. They made their case that Jesus was a sinner for breaking one of their little man-made rules. This man makes the case that God doesn't hear sinners but he does hear those who fear him and do his will. And the proof that God hears Jesus are my eyes, he says. <laughs> this incredible miracle. That's the proof. Right before you. If Jesus was not from God, he couldn't have done it. Verse 34. They throw the rabbinical doctrine of sin right back at him. The common belief that we talked about. Their, their really pathetic theory of suffering. The very question the disciples were asking Jesus about. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And you're teaching us? So they put him out. Born in sins, because he was born, in, born blind, not because he'd sinned, but just because he was born blind, he's a sinner. How dare a man born blind, who must have sin, guilty of something, how dare he question us, they say. Out he goes. Now, put him out doesn't mean they asked him to leave the room. Put him out goes back to verse 14. And it's mentioned in verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 22 where it says, put out of the synagogue. Put out of the synagogue is what he means here. Excommunicated excommunicated, no longer welcome in the community of Israel, not allowed to worship, and socially an outcast. Anybody that's excommunicated is not going to be treated as a fellow Jew. He will be treated like a Gentile or a tax collector from now on. This can be quite a painful thing obviously. No longer welcome means no longer welcome in polite society at all. Well, Jesus actually hears about this, John tells us, and seeks the man out. And he can see Jesus. Now, can you imagine Jesus coming and he hears the voice and then he says, oh, that's him. I can tell by his voice. And Jesus asks him a question, verse 35. Do you believe in the Son of Man? If you have a King James, it'll say Son of God. That's a long story about manuscripts. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man only needs to know who Jesus is. That's what Jesus wants from him. He's not just a prophet. He's more than a prophet. Son of man is a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. The son of man will rule the entire world. Verse 36. He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Good question. Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And that's what all men are called upon to do. You take a good look at Jesus and all we know about him and you'd have to be blind not to follow this man and believe and worship him. You'd have to be blind, spiritually blind. That is the human condition. And Jesus said, verse 39, for judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Verse 40. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things. And said to him. We are not blind too are we? 
And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So they claim, the Pharisees, the right to judge. And they claim to have the wisdom to judge. They're blind, but they say we see. And that's their problem. Spiritual blindness is a moral problem. It's a pride problem. It can be a religious blindness like these Pharisees or it can be just the blindness of general willful unbelief that people have. Uh, uh, doesn't mean anything to me. I think the Pharisees expect Jesus to just say, well, you're the blind ones. But he does it in a really marvelous way. He's doing spiritual surgery on them. He's trying to wake them up. If they were truly ignorant, they couldn't be held accountable for their sin of rejecting him but, and hating him even, but they're not ignorant. They see him. The light they have in front of them, these Pharisees, it's like the light of the sun. It's bright. It's complete. So bright they have to squint to deny it. You know? That's not light. <laughs> it's like that. They should be on their knees before him, the truly righteous one, because he's the savior of the world. God could not have been more clear in pointing out who he sent into the world. This is the one, literally, a blind man can see it. You know, literally, here on this day. And they profess to be righteous. They claim to be Moses' heirs and sons of Abraham, but they're just wicked men with a cloak of religion around them. You can't be saved if you don't know you're a sinner. If you think you're so with it that you've got it all together that you're righteous before God you can't be saved if you don't know that you need to be reconciled to God blindness doesn't see these things doesn't see the true self it doesn't see our condition before God as sinners it doesn't see that he is righteous it doesn't see that he provided an incredible wonderful savior unlike anyone that's ever lived before blindness loves the world more than God it loves the praise of men more than God it loves religion more than God in this case. These are blinding kinds of love that men have. We say love is blind, don't we? What is it we when we say that we mean, oh my gosh, they love, she loves that jerk. <laughs> She's so in love with him she can't see what a jerk he is. That's what we usually mean, right? We mean that feelings can hide the truth from us. That's what we mean when we say that. Well, if you love the world and you love your own reputation and you love to be righteous in the eyes of other people more, than God, that's a blind kind of love. You love yourself and you're blind by it. So you have to realize how blind you are and humble yourself. Well, we started this morning with that little story from John Newton about a blind world, you know, and the people that come in and suddenly they have their eyes open. Remember that? Well, John Newton, like me and like you, was blind, spiritually blind until the Lord opened his eyes. And in 1772, he wrote a little song that is still sung all over the world. We call it Amazing Grace. <laughs> and this is how it goes. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. 
So grace opens her eyes. It teaches us to fear our lost condition. That's the fear he's talking about. And then it relieves the fear because it shows us how gracious God's love is in providing us a savior. God opens your eyes. If he opens your eyes just a little bit, you can see enough to receive that grace from him. Don't let anything keep you from a perfect savior. There should be no love for less worthy things and no unwillingness to see your need for Christ. Don't be blind. Let's pray. Lord, we are indeed unworthy of you. In ourselves, we are blind. We're children of Adam and Eve. We've walked away from you. So we ask you to open our eyes to the incredible person of Jesus Christ, the Savior that you sent into the world to die for our sins. And we know it's true because he rose from the dead and changed the world. And there's never been anyone like him before or since. He is the Savior, the light of the world. So enlighten our eyes and may we cling to him. We pray in his name. Amen.